0: If you look at your bulletin, you might be confused about which passage we are doing. And on one side it says we are looking at John 3:16 to 21 page you did read the correct passage, so perfect. But on the other side of your bulletin it says, You Must Be Born Again is the title, and we're looking at John 3, 1-15. Well, I'm not trying to do a do-over here from last week because I, I felt it went poorly. That's we, It was just a... Uh, uh, a mistake in the bulletin, a trust in, in God's sufficiency in causing that word to be effective. So we are looking at John 3:16 to 21, but that does provide us with a good segue to look back and to consider the context of what we've been uh, studying together. You'll notice verse 16 begins with the word for, which clues us in, well, we need to figure out where, where is that for coming coming from what is that pointing to and it's pointing to the paragraph before it so as we considered in in the beginning of chapter 3 jesus uh, nicodemus comes to jesus and begins asking him questions about his identity who he is jesus doesn't exactly answer his question but he basically answers by saying really you have to be born again to understand who i am there has to be a previous work of god in your heart If you're to understand the reality of who I am and what I have come to do. If you're going to see the kingdom of God, if you're going to understand the kingdom of God, if you're going to understand the things of God, it will not come about because you were born a Jew, because you were born in this family or that family. It won't uh, won't come about because of your own intellect or understanding or spirituality. It will only come about if the Spirit of God moves in you first. And then Nicodemus says, how can this be? How does this happen? And what does Jesus answer? We might think he's not answering him because he says, you're a teacher of Israel, you should know. But then he connects this baptism of water and the Holy Spirit to the Old Testament promise in Ezekiel, When God, in the last days through His Messiah, would sprinkle His people with clean water, cleansing them from their sins, and then giving them a new heart that they might begin walking in His ways. How can these things be? And then He points ultimately to Himself. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. How does it happen that the Spirit moves wherever He wills to indwell individuals to help them to see the kingdom? It is through this Messiah who is lifted up and crucified, highly exalted on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners, who then dies and is resurrected, to then pour out his spirit upon his people at Pentecost. This is the background, the beginning, the context of verses 16 to 21. And so when we see the word for here in 16, we are drawn back to verses 1 through 15, particularly, I would say, verse 15, as here either the author of, or Jesus expounds more clearly what he's talking about this Son of Man lifted up. He expounds the the universal implications of this Son of Man being lifted up. I say Jesus or the author because it's not entirely clear who's speaking here in verses uh, 16 to 21. Some think that it's Jesus continuing to speak. Some think that the author now, John, is making his own comments, expounding upon what Jesus said. I think for our purposes, it doesn't matter a whole lot. I have my suspicions But we have the text here before us, and either way, it's an exposition. It's a further description of what Jesus has been talking about, the Son of Man being lifted up. And I think in particular, it speaks of particularly the role of God, the Father, in sending His Son. If you look at verses 1 through 21 together, it's a very Trinitarian passage. We have the Holy Spirit Indwelling people giving the new birth. We have the Son of Man being lifted up. And then here in 16 to 21, we have the Father who is giving the Son with His perfect plan ultimately for His glory. And that's what I would say is the focus of our message this morning. God sent His Son for the glory of God. I'll use a catechism like Jason did. This one comes from a catechism for young, young children. I believe the first question goes who made you the answer is god made me the second question is what else did god make god made all things the third question is why did god make you in all things and the answer do you know it for his own glory god made me in all things for His own glory. Why did God send His Son into the world? We might come up with a number of answers, and we will. We'll see them in this passage, but ultimately it comes back to this. God sent His own Son for His own glory. So I want you to see as we consider this mission of God in sending His Son. First, I want you to see its motive. Its motive here in verse 16. The motive of the sending of the Son into the world is love. We've seen the connection of the word for, linking back to the previous verses. For, here's here's why the Son of Man must be lifted up. Here's why this is happening. It comes to the, the plan of God, which is grounded in the love of God. For God so loved the world He gave. Your version might say, God loved the world in this way. That's another way of taking it. I, I remember hearing a sermon long ago saying, sometimes we, make, we, we say this verse, for God so loved the world. He, he so dearly loved the world that he gave. And they made the point that that's not what we should take from it, but that we should say in this manner. He did it in this way. As I studied back through it, I found, no, actually, that is a legitimate translation and interpretation. That God did so dearly love the world that he gave his son. And so all these years I've been thinking, no, that's whenever anybody said that. No, that's not right. It's in this way. But I think we could see both of those in this way. He did love the world, and yet it is because of his great love for the world. It's bound up in his character of who he is. As John says in another place, God is love. But the surprising thing here is not so much that God loved. I think if you ask anybody, most people in our culture who believe in God, they would agree with this, that God is love, that God loves the whole world, that God loves everyone, right? That's not a surprising thing for unbelievers necessarily or those who aren't Christians. Yeah, God loves everyone. But usually, if you consider, if you, if you press in a little bit more, if you dig into that comment a little more, that person who says God loves everybody probably has a category of people who do not fit in that bigger category of everybody. I wonder maybe if you have a category like that. God loves everybody, but does he love the terrorists? Does he love murderers or rapists? Does he love... The racist, does he, who does he love? Who does he not love? Does God love everybody? Or do, you, do we tend to have a category of people he does not love? You see, the shock is not so much that God loves, but what it says here, God loves. For God so loved the world. And there the world isn't speaking precisely of every individual, but it has a, a negative connotation when John uses this, this word world, it has a negative connotation of the world of humanity, this mass of humanity, as it is in its fallen state, as it is in its sinfulness, as it is in its brokenness, as it is in its rebelliousness. As we think about our own love, we, it's so easy, it's, it's easier to get a picture of God's love as we contrast it with our own love. Who, who is it that you are most willing and eager to live in your own, love in your own life? Those who are good. Those who are kind to you. Those who are nice to your family and your children. Those who try to act responsibly and go, be good citizens in this world. Those who are innocent. So we might even kind of take it down a, a level and say, okay, what about those who are... Vulnerable, the outcasts of the world, those nobody else loves. That might be a, a, a step up in our love. And yet we might would say, well, they're, they're innocent. Even though they're vulnerable and outcasts, they're, they're kind of innocent. We can extend our love for them. And it's even a, a virtuous thing to love those outcasts. But what if you take it down another level? Those people who by any objective, standard, or measure, are bad people. Or those who actually are not just bad people abstractly, but they actually oppose you. They come against you and your family. Do you love them? Are you able to love them? And this is where we see the surprising nature of God's love. He doesn't love those who are lovable. He doesn't love those who have earned a, a reputation for being good and kind and loving. He doesn't love those who are righteous in themselves. God loves the sinful and broken world. This is surprising. He loves not only those Jews of the time that would have been well known. He loves the world, the sinful world. But there's, there's another surprise here. God so loved the world that He gave. There is surprise at what God loved and there is surprise at what He gave. What do you give to those you love? Again, contrasting our love with the love of God. What do you give to those who seem worthy of your love? To even those who are good and kind to you? You might give something of great value, but do you give them everything? Do you give them your absolute best? Do you give them that gift which is most valuable to you, most dear to you? Well, if we're unlikely to give that which is most valuable to us, to those we love and those who we deem worthy of our love, how would we possibly give that same thing of value to those who are rebellious and vehemently opposed to us? This is the love of God. God So loved the world He gave His only Son. Listen to this quote. Love, that is why I did what I did. Love as an action is more powerful than words. And love in the face of evil gives others hope. It demonstrates humanity. Love is the only message I wish to instill in you. If my actions mean anything, love means everything. Now I share that quote to you not because I endorse everything in it, but to show you, in a sense, the power of love against those who are evil. An expression of love against those who wanted to do you wrong. This was Ari Mahler the Jewish nurse who treated Robert Bowers after he killed 11 people in a Pittsburgh synagogue. Love is why I did that. The one who killed my own people. He he said he was wondering, even as he worked, whether his parents could have been those who were killed in the synagogue but I would would change his quote around to make it more biblical and say it does not demonstrate humanity. It demonstrates divinity. It demonstrates God's love for this sinful world. In the sending of the Son of God, the love of God is magnified. When God the Father sent His Son to the world, it magnified the love of God. Who He put His love upon and how He loved them by sending His own Son. So brothers and sisters, do we make much of the love of God? When you teach your children, what what kind of picture do they have in their mind of who God is? Do you magnify the love of God for sinners? in your evangelism, as you are sharing the gospel with other people? What are you magnifying? Are you magnifying the love of God? Are you making much of the love of God? As you consider your own life, as you consider the fact that while you were still a sinner, this is how God demonstrated His love for us. He sent Jesus Christ to die for us. Brothers and sisters, let us magnify the love of God for us. It should surprise us. And if God demonstrates his love for us while we were yet sinners, how much more now, that now having been justified, will he shed his love on us? How much more sure can we be that he loves us? That if he loved us while we were rebellious and sinful, how much more will he love us having been justified by his blood and indwelt by his Holy Spirit? Brothers and sisters, God loves you in a way that you cannot imagine. When I tell my children, I love you, I mean it. Do you mean it when you tell others that you love them? And yet we recognize with our own deficiencies, with our own sin, with our own limited nature, when we say, I love you to one another, we can't come close to the love of God for his people. God sending His Son into the world magnifies His love. We see that by seeing the the motive of this mission, but also we see in verses 17 and 18 the purpose of this sending of the Son. We see its purpose. The motive was love and the purpose is salvation. We have another four. So we have to look back. Four, how is God's love demonstrated in the sending of His Son? How else, what does this look like? For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. There is a contrast. Notice the contrast in these verses, but throughout the rest of our text this morning. He sent His Son not to condemn, but that the world might be saved through Him. So then we might be thinking, okay, so God, in His love for the world, sent His Son. Not that the world might be condemned, but that the world might be saved through Him. Does that mean the world will be saved? Does that mean everyone, every individual in the world will be saved? We already have had the qualification in verse 16, though, whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. In verses 17 and 18, we have a shift in language to judicial sort of language. Condemnation versus those who are not condemned. And he goes on to actually make a further qualification. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This gives us another picture of what Jesus does in being lifted up on the cross for the salvation of sinners. It's not only that he gives us eternal life to live in abundance here and now and to live forever, it not only spares us from being perished, from dying, from perishing, but he adds another nuance to it here that now we can escape condemnation, we can escape judgment. And this brings to our minds the fact of uh, not only dying versus living, but the fact of God's judgment of what is right and what is wrong of those who will perish and those who will not. It's just not, not just an issue of whether we'll die or whether we'll live forever. It has to do with whether or not God's favor is upon us or whether His judgment rests upon us. I don't always preach doom and gloom, hellfire and brimstone. Those who are visiting might not know that. And yet what came to mind was Jonathan Edwards' sermon on sinners in the hands of an angry God. You're probably well familiar with that, maybe from English class long ago. He gives a picture of God holding a spider, or he calls it some loathsome insect. I don't know why John, Jonathan Edwards has such a problem with insects, but some loathsome insect over the fire. And he says, there, there, at this point, there is no reason for God not to simply drop the insect. There's no reason within the insect. There's, there's no reason why God shouldn't do that. Except for the patience and kindness of God except for the mercy of God. Nothing will save you in that moment, not your own self-righteousness, not your own abilities to, to try to do God, to do good. Jonathan Edwards says that would be like trying, trying to put a rock on the end of that spider web. It, it, there's nothing that can stop it from falling. It is certain that it will happen if something doesn't change. And if it were not for the mercy of God, it would be so. But consider, unbeliever, consider in light of that illustration, in light of this text, that you are already condemned. The condemnation of God, the judgment of God, rests over you at this very moment. And there's no reason why God couldn't take you. There's no reason within you why He would spare you. And yet, because of His mercy, He is allowing you. He is patient with you, not willing that any would perish, but wanting you to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus that you would receive the favor of God, that you would escape this condemnation which rests over you. I imagine it as if there is this cloud of dread hanging over you. And yet it's not just some circumstance. It is actually the divine wrath of God which is hanging over you. Which will rest upon you for the rest of your life until and unless you turn from your sins and cling in faith to Christ. Know that it is the love of God and the patience of God that He spares you at this moment. And let that love of God Let that patience of God turn you in faith to Jesus. And then you will receive what is true for you and me, brothers and sisters. Did you see what it says? Do you see how this applies to you who have believed in the name of the only Son of God? This is good news. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned your mind immediately goes to Romans 8.1. There is therefore, brothers and sisters, no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. Do you ever ever have a sense of dread? That you're not living the way you want to live? That you, with your family or with your loved ones or with others, you're not living out that which you desire. And then a sense of dread may come over you and say, God is is going to condemn me for this. God God is angry at me. God is going to judge me for this. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Not condemned. There is no condemnation for you because of the one who was lifted up. Because of the one who was lifted up as a propitiation for sin, the one who received the condemnation for us, the one who received the wrath of God for us and has set us free. And now God looks upon you, brothers and sisters, as those who have fulfilled the will of God because of Jesus' Christ, Jesus Christ's righteousness imputed to you. There is no condemnation for you. You can walk in this freedom knowing that God loves you, not because of anything worthy in you or righteous in you, but because of the Son of God who was lifted up for you and took your sins. Look to Jesus yet again in your despair, and you will find this freedom. You will find this favor. You will, you will hear, in a sense, by ear, with ears of face this pronounced over you there is no condemnation for those of you who are in christ jesus and in this the grace of god is magnified by the sending of the son of god the love of god is magnified and the grace of god is magnified this is what we want in our fellowship isn't it we want the grace of god magnified and so when you come in after a week of struggles and trials I want you, I want us to be ready to speak of God's grace to one another. We pray this every Sunday before the service in our smaller group. We want our words to to be filled with the grace of Jesus Christ, encouraging one another. Here's, despite the struggles that I've had this last week, brothers and sisters, here's how God has been so good to me in His grace. Reflecting upon His mercies to you, living in gratitude and then speaking those words about god's grace to one another let the grace of god be magnified in our speaking to one another let the grace of god be magnified in your own heart because that's where that's where you will then have the ability to begin giving grace to others that's when you'll have the the ability to begin giving favor to others even though they don't deserve it to your children to your spouses to your co-workers, to those who don't deserve anything. And you'll be able to give grace to them because of the grace you have received in Christ Jesus. Finally, notice the result of this sending of the Son into the world for the glory of God. The result is division. A revealing of a division in the world. Verses 19 to 21. We have... This language, again, uh, this judicial language, judgment, a verdict. It's a little bit of a different word than we just looked at in the previous verses. Those speak of condemnation. Verse 19 says, and this is the judgment. This is the verdict. this This is the legal case which has come down. So listen to the verdict. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil he goes on to say why they loved the darkness rather than light for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed In other words, they hate the light because their deeds are evil and they don't want their works to come under the scrutiny of anyone else, including God. They don't want it to be exposed. They don't want it being put under a microscope for anyone to see. They hate the light. I I want to stay away from that. I, I hate the feeling of being exposed, of having my evil deeds seen by you or anyone else, especially God. There's, there's another contrast here. Recently, a few men and I, we were talking about something related to this, this idea of bringing our sins out into the light. The necessity of bringing our sins to the light of those who are trustworthy, of those who are mature, because we want to be in the light. I want to be in the light as he is in the light, he is the light. We want to be in him. And to walk in the shadows, to walk in darkness is not to walk in, in the truth. It is not to walk in the light. So it is true of believers, you want to walk in the light, do you not? There is a freedom in walking in the light. A freeing freedom of exposing your evil deeds to the one who has saved you into faithful brothers and sisters as true as that is i don't think that's the main contrast here because you might would expect the verse to go on the next verse to say but those who believe in the son come to the light to expose their own evil deeds that's what i i was expecting to re- read if you if you kind of blank your mind out and think what should he say next It's not what he says. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed, lest these evil works exposed. But what does he say? But whoever does what is true comes to the light. Whoever does what is true, whoever does, another way you could put it, is faithful. Another one who does the truth. Well, who is the one who does the truth? I thought the verdict was this. I thought the verdict was the light has come into the world, and people hated the darkness. But what does he mean? Mean whoever does what is true and comes to the light. We read on. So that this purpose, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been wrought in God, have been carried out in God, have been done in God. I don't think you can make sense of this unless you tie it back to the rest of the context. Because at first you will say, this, here's the judgment, the light has come into the world, everyone has hated the light and preferred their darkness. This is true of every single human being who has ever walked the earth, save one. This was true of you. This may still be true of you if you are not in Christ. You love the darkness rather than the light because you don't want your evil deeds to be exposed. So who is it that does what is true? It is those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit of God. You see, we, we want to maybe shy away from this aspect of it, that good deeds, that these faithful works should be a part of our life because we know our own tendency to not do that, right? Romans 7, we know, you know, I, I yearn to do the things that God wants me to do and yet I find this work within me. I can't bring myself to do those things that I want to do. What is going on with me? And Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And yet, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The connection then is that those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit of God, as they look to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is lifted up on the cross, then begin to carry out faithful works of goodness, of love, of grace to others. And so then we come to the light. It is is these who have been born again who come to the light. But they don't come to the light and say, look what I've done. Look, Look at all these good deeds that I've done. Rather, what does it say? They come to the light and they say, Look at these deeds that God has done in me. These are done by the power of God for His glory. Again, circling back to His glory. As we were talking kind of about exposing ourselves and confessing our sins and accountability, we're, we're often very good in our own lives too about confessing sins of, that we've committed, things that we've done, and we want to avoid bad things. We want to avoid doing bad things. But this... This passage tells us we ought to also be concerned about sins of omission, right? Doing good should be a part of the fruit that is the Holy Spirit working in us. So in our accountability groups, or accountability partners, what good have you done for the poor this week, brothers and sisters? What act of grace have you shown to others? What faithful deed have you done, not in yourself or in your own righteousness, but by the very power of God and the grace of God within you? And this, in turn, works again for the glory of God. His justice is magnified because those who deserve condemnation are condemned. And yet, by the working of the Holy Spirit, He not only imputes to us the righteousness of Christ, he begins to enable us to obey his word, to keep his commands. And so this is what John Piper says, the coming of Jesus into the world clarifies that unbelief is our own fault and that belief is God's gift. And it magnifies the glory of God. We could add to that, not only is belief God's gift, works of faithfulness and righteousness are the gift of God. When you see those in your brothers' and sisters' lives, rejoice because you are seeing a gift of God. When you see this in your own life, this act of kindness, and you you wonder, where did that come from? When you see this act of grace to one who doesn't deserve it, where did that come from? Give Praise to the Lord because it is a gift from His hand. So, brothers and sisters, let us magnify the name of God. He has sent His Son into the world in love for the salvation of sinners, proving His justice and righteousness, and it is all for the glory of God alone. Let's pray together.